Welcome. I'm Father Mitch Paquo, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the words of sacred scripture and try to understand it through the lens of the apostolic tradition. Now, we'd love to have you be part of the show by adding your questions and comments. You can do so by calling during the live show, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can call 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. Now, that works if you're in North America. If you're not, you can still call in, but you have to call country code 1, area code 205, 271 2980. Or you can also send us your questions and comments by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com. Or you can follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we're going to look at the mission of the 12 disciples, the first time the Lord Jesus sent the 12 apostles out and how the martyrdom of baptism, uh, of John the Baptist, uh, fits into that. So that's going to be uh, what our topic is. We'll look at Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 29, uh, today and next week. Now, Again, we're going through my book called Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee. You can get that at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52885, 52885. So, let's take a look at this section of Mark chapter, seven, uh, chapter 6, verses 7 to 29. Now, Something about that whole section, that's, there's a fancy word from Greek that people use, and it's called pericope, pericope. Uh, it's spelled P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. -E. Some people think it looks like pericope, but it's a Greek word, so you say pericope. And this is one large Unit, one large pericope. And the reason I mention that is a lot of scholars over the years have noticed that St. Mark uses a sandwich kind of technique in which he'll start one story and then there's another story in between the beginning and the end. We saw this with the woman who had the hemorrhage was sandwiched in between the healing of the daughter of Jairus. And it's no accident that both the, the daughter was 12 years old and the woman had the hemorrhage for 12 years. And it's meant to help interpret each other. The story sandwiched in between the meat of it is about the woman's faith. And then 
the sandwich side with the raising of Jairus' daughter was also about faith for a young girl. And they go together. Here, too, we will see that it begins with the mission of the Twelve in Mark chapter 7, verse 13. And then in verse 14, it switches over to the story of the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And then it comes back to the the, uh, story of the return of the apostles from their mission. So I want you to think about that for this reason, that you can have a sense of the mission of the apostles is to help interpret the death of John the Baptist, and the death of John the Baptist is meant to interpret the mission. So we'll be looking for that. That's something that we'll move towards in the last part of this. So this is where we start off. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, And he called to him the twelve, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So this is how it begins, the mission begins. And in this, we see a couple things. First, that Jesus sent the apostles out in six groups of two each. And they're to go to different villages that would be scattered all around the territory of Galilee. And it's important to note that this mission did not begin on their initiative. They didn't say, you know, Lord Jesus, it would be really good to start a mission. Let's, let, let's get some signs, we'll get some drums, we'll get uh, some trumpets or something. You know, let, let's, let's really do it up. No, 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 this, this is not what's going on. <coughs> it is something that Jesus calls them to do. And this is very, very important for all of us to consider because the vocation that each of us has is not merely a career choice. Sometimes people want to talk about the priesthood or religious life as a sister or brother or a monk as a career choice. That's not the way most of us experience it. It's rather something that our Lord has called us to. And something similar is also true about marriage. This is a vocation that God calls you to. This is the mission that he gives you. And if you start to think about priesthood or religious life as a good career choice, you will be tempted to look at it as an opportunity to promote your own ego. 
And if you start doing that, you'll get chewed up and spit out in small pieces because either trying to seek pride or financial benefit will undo the person looking for that. It lends toward an inauthenticity. Of course, you know, priests and nuns get what they need to live on, but it's not about a, a great job that you can make a lot of money. When you, it's interesting to read what the atheists say. They always talk about how eh, this is all a scam by the clergy to make the big bucks. And there are people like that. That occurs in all religions across the board. But that's because they're doing their own career chores, they're doing their own thing, just like what the atheists are doing. That's why the atheists can understand such clergy at their own level, because for them it's all about a career choice. Whereas what we have here in the call to religious life is God inviting us to do it. And then if you answer the call, it's because God called you, God invited you to this, and it's His authority. Now, Notice that Jesus is going to send them. And this word send in Greek is apostolain, apostolain. It means to send. I hope you can recognize when you hear the word apostolain that it's the verb form that we get the word apostolos from, apostle. An apostle is someone who is sent. And in fact, that is a Greek translation of what the rabbis used to do. They had disciples that they sent, apostles, that they sent ahead of them or to go and do different jobs for them. So our Lord is using a term that was common enough among the other rabbis. It's just that we know it in Greek rather than in Hebrew. And notice that they will take up Jesus' call to go out and spread the good news, and they are going into the world where there are a lot of unclean spirits, and these unclean spirits uh, we're going to ruin people's lives and keep them in sin. You know, I noticed that I was recently traveling to Texas over the holidays, and, you know, you see these big signs advertising uh, places, uh, they, they call them adult stores. Um, they should add the word immature uh, adult because that's not for mature, committed adults. And th there's, every time I pass one, I keep those close to the interstate, uh, all over the, the country. And every time I pass them, I always pray to bind the spirit of lust that is working there, to bind it in the name of Jesus Christ, 
And then I just say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I bind that spirit of lust in this place. I just keep driving. But, you know, it's something that was worth doing. And same with other places filled with sin. This is what Christ sent them to do so as to help people get away from the unclean spirits and instead enter the kingdom of God, to repent and enter the kingdom of God, which was his message. Now, something else that we see in verses 8 and 9, that Jesus defines the purpose of the mission, and he also tells them how to carry it out. So he says, Jesus charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So they are going out in a manner that they will have to trust in God's providence rather than in their own preparation. Think back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 to 34, that our Lord is especially speaking to his disciples and telling them not to be anxious. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. The Father in heaven takes care of the birds of the field and the lilies of the field. They're dressed better than Solomon with all his wealth. So if the Lord can take care of flowers that are cut down and burnt up in fire, you know, after a short while, he'll take really good care of you. So don't be anxious, but trust in the Father. And again, the mission comes from God's authority, but it continues by depending on God's providence. Well, I don't know what we're going to do or where we're going to stay. Well, I, I don't either. I don't either. You know, sometimes that is just one of those amazing things. I remember back in 1994, I set out from Chicago. I had a, a plane, one-way plane ticket to Israel, Tel Aviv, and $100. And I was planning to go all the way around the world. And I did. I, you know, gave talks, lectured about the New Age movement, all the way around, went from Israel to Amman, and then to Singapore, and Borneo, and Australia, New Zealand, and Fiji, and then back to the States. You know, lecturing about the New Age movement preaching the gospel that against the unclean spirits of the New Age movement. And, you know, did just fine. So it's God's mission, and we trust in His providence. And we also see in verses 10 and 11, when Jesus also told them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you, and they refuse to hear you, then uh, uh, when you leave, 
shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So that's his instruction. Um, they, they're allowed to stay in people's homes, accept hospitality. That's what I did when I went all the way around the world. I didn't stay in uh, hotels. I accepted other people's hospitality. But the Lord also doesn't want his apostles to be opportunistic. Wait a minute. There's a guy over here who's got more uh, uh, riches. He's got a nicer house. Matter of fact, this one has a swimming pool. And, oh, I'll, I'll, it was nice visiting with you, but I'm going over here. No, you go to where you're accepted and you just stay there. Don't be looking around for the better places. You just stay and, uh, as it goes. However, if a place rejects the gospel, then those people have to be rejected as a sign that God will also reject them. And that's why they shake the dust off their feet, a sign of rejection of that place, and God will bring about the judgment. And then we also see um, that in verse 12 to 13, so they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. So this was very much know their mission and they were preaching what Jesus told them to say repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and secondly he cast out they cast out demons just like Jesus did remember the first miracle he did in the synagogue at Capernaum was to cast out a demon and then they also are to heal but one of the things that is, well, it's a little bit different. Um, i tell you what, let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about that difference uh, between Jesus' healing and the apostles' healing. And that'll have some way to help us understand a little bit of what's going on in our own sacrament of the anointing of the sick. So please stay with us. Welcome back. We are still taking a look at the mission of the 12 apostles when the Lord sent them out two by two to the various villages of Galilee. And how they had gone out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So let's, let's take a look at that. Again, I already mentioned that by preaching that people should repent, 
they were giving the same basic message as Jesus our Lord. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, that word repent means to turn around. It comes from realizing that each of us can be on the wrong path. And if you say, oh, this is the wrong path, and then you keep going down the same path, you're going to end up in the wrong place. That it's, it's not good sense to realize that your pathway of life is not good, not right, not correct, unless you turn around. That's what repent means, to turn around, backtrack to the right path, and then set off on the way that our Lord calls uh, narrow, the, the straight and narrow path. That's what he wants us to do, and that's what he's getting them to do. So that's our Lord's message. Secondly, they have this authority to exercise. This is still something that we use quite a bit today. Uh, a lot of people began to think that it was going into abeyance, that it wasn't being used, and it wasn't because the culture had become very, very Christian. But over the past few decades, we've seen two things. One, a lot of people lose their faith in Christ. They lose their faith in the church. They lose their faith in Scripture. And as a result of the loss of faith, they often turn to a lot of things that are wrong. I believe it's a quote attributed to G.K. Chesterton who said, when someone loses their faith in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And that's why a lot of people who give up their faith in God will turn to sometimes witchcraft, new age, sometimes satanic worship. And it's all, very often, there's, I just was reading the other day, how many atheists are giving up. They don't want God to be real because they would like to live a life of sexual license. They don't want God telling them what they can't do. And they actually put that in their books. That's why they don't want to change to believe in God, because God will tell them no, and they like what they're doing. So this is something that goes on. And as a result of rejecting faith and turning to all these alternatives, you oftentimes get people involved with various demonic and even satanic things that are happening. So exorcism is now growing. The, the, the church has opened a school to train priests to be exorcists. That's what the apostles were having to do as well. Now then the other thing is they heal. And they heal by anointing with oil. Now notice that the apostles anoint with oil and Jesus didn't. Why not? What's the difference? Well, it's very important to see. When Jesus, our Lord, healed, it was something that came directly from him. It was 
the result of his divine power. It was his personal authority to heal. And they, you know, they, he could just say a word and the leper was healed. Whereas the apostles are sent by Jesus. Therefore, their mission to heal is derivative. They derived it from Jesus. So they use oil as an outward sign of Jesus healing. Jesus is still the one who does the healing, but the outward sign of using oil is a way to express that Jesus is the real authority. I'm just doing what he told me to do. And we still see that priests uh, anoint uh, people with oil and some of the other uh, churches and denominations, they also anoint with oil. Because as a sign of Jesus being the real healer, we're just there to be his instruments. So that's very important. And again, notice that this is all about the apostles doing the mission of Jesus, not their own mission. And they are not about their own enterprise, their own business, or anything like that. It's faithfulness to Jesus that is key. And this is something that each of us needs to consider because we are all on a mission. Nobody's exempt. That is the meaning of Pentecost. After our Lord's ascension into heaven, where he sat at the right hand of the Father to plead for us as our one true high priest. Then the Holy Spirit came to the church and they went on mission. And this is a way to determine your life. You have freedom to accept the mission or not, but this is something that uh, our Lord wants us to do. Now, this goes against modern culture. The modern culture has a very, very popular song. It's been played, sung by lots of people, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, lots of others. The song is called, I Did It My Way. And it sort of boasts uh, as an anthem of the modern world, you know, that I did it my way. However, I've also heard a number of Christian singers who take the song and change it because they realized when they were doing it my way, they were messing up their lives. They really made a mess. So they started changing it to, I did it his way. We try to do it the way of Jesus. The world wants us to do it my way. The church is to do it Jesus' way. And we should examine our own lives. Which one is really appropriate for me? Am I really living my life so that I did it my way? Or am I living my life so I did it Jesus' way? Which one of those is true? Which is the accurate description? Do I pray to God the Father 
thy will be done. Or do I say my will be done? And we have to ask ourselves, when we do it our way, how does that work out for us? How is that, uh, you know, helping us here? Probably not. So it would be a good way to pray over this passage uh, in Mark 6, verse 7 to 13. Consider the choices that you make in your life. Did I do it my way? And then see the consequences of doing it my way. Or was I doing it our Lord's way? And where does that get? Doesn't mean that everything goes really well. When you do it the Lord's way, you get in trouble. That's going to be key to understanding why it, the story goes over to John the Baptist. He did things God's way and he was martyred. And that's important for us to pay attention to. But we should ask that question, if you can't be in a church where the Blessed Sacrament is present, or if there's a holy hour, you know, go before the Blessed Sacrament. Speak to them about the choices you've made in your life. Speak to them about the consequences of those choices. Does following Him bring peace? Does following my way give me peace? And... Then ask yourself, at this point in my life, whose way do I want it to be? Do I want it to be Jesus' way or my way? Am I going to keep doing what I want or will I do what He wants? And ask our Lord with, with as much open-mindedness as you can possibly have. Say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is the mission you are giving me? And take time to listen to him. Now talk to him as a friend to a friend. But take time to listen. And when you conclude this prayer time, I recommend that you pray the Our Father with a strong emphasis on thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Emphasize that in this context and see as, with as much openness as you can find what is our Lord asking you to do. All right. Well, we'll stop there and we will uh, continue on next week with the story of John the Baptist. And I'll even give a little bit of background on who is this Herod? Which, there's a lot of Herods in the Bible. That's because Herod kept naming his sons after himself. And he had, I think, seven different wives. So he had a whole bunch of sons, and lots of them were named Herod. So we'll go through which Herod it is and try to get those relationships. And then talk more <clears throat> talk more about you know what that martyrdom of John the Baptist means so we'll get back to that next week let's take a look at some of your emails um, this first one uh, from Jean it says Father Mitch if we are to be in heaven after the end of the world 
and our bodies and souls are raised from the dead. Why do we need our bodies? Wouldn't we already be spirits? Of what use will our bodies be? Thanks. Well, Gene, this is getting at the very nature of being a human. That we are not angels. Well, my mother was, didn't need any convincing of that. Uh, she, knew, she knew that not many of her kids were angels. But we are flesh and spirit. We are body and soul. And that this makes up the whole of our personality. And, you know, think about our personalities. I, I know it's, it's not popular, but I don't want to say popular things when they're really stupid. And what I'm referring to here is that there really is a difference in the way men and women think and react. I mean, we're all rational creatures, to be sure. But there is a way that a woman thinks about things and a way that a man thinks about them. And in fact, they are complementary. And having a womanly nature and having a manly nature is the way we're born. And God cherishes your femininity if you're a woman and your masculinity if you're a man. This is very, very important to appreciate. And he, notice how it's said in the beginning, God created the male and female in his own image and likeness. And he wants to raise us up with masculinity of the males and the femininity of the females. And he cherishes the, the, ins, the feminine insight and the masculine insight into life. You know, there are a lot of people who talk about toxic masculinity as if just being a man is just toxic. That is just dumb, just plain out dumb. We are to be raised up. What we want is our masculinity and our femininity to be purified by God's grace and raised up, but not destroyed or cease to be. So that's why God likes us. You know, uh, I, I've always liked having pets, and I like dogs for their dogginess, and my cats for their cattiness, you know, that the, God loves us in our full humanity, so that's why he wants them raised up. But that's a great, great question. Now we have Anastasia. Uh, Anastasia, your name means resurrection, right? Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does indeed. Yes. Um, now, my question is regarding the, the gospel for Friday, December 30th, and it said um, he went and dwelt in a town called Nazareth so that what had been spoken to the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Uh -huh. Now, that was Matthew 2:23, but I could not find that prophecy that they're making reference to. Uh-huh. 
האם את יכולת לקרוא עברית מהתנ״ך? No, you don't read Hebrew, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, that's why it, 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 it takes reading Hebrew to, to catch it. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, A shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse. Remember yeah, that? I read that. I saw that cross-reference, but I didn't see Nazarene, so... Right, because... <laughs> you need to read Hebrew. In oh, Hebrew, okay. <laughs> the word for shoot is netzer. Netzer is the root for Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. So the town is given a feminine ending because they, they thought of towns as being the mother of the people who live there. So Nazareth is the place of the shoot. But okay. the Netzer is the shoot that was prophesied. And that's what Matthew is referring to. Okay. Does Now, that help? When, when Jesus, well, yeah, but when Jesus called, I think it was Philip, and he said, and they mentioned that he was from Nazareth, and right. Philip said, what good can come out of Nazareth? I got Actually, that was uh, that Nick, uh, Bartholomew. Bartholomew who oh, said Bartholomew. that. Bartholomew, I'm yeah. sorry, Bartholomew. And yeah, I got yeah. the impression that there wasn't any real, any real prophet, but maybe he missed that part, though. So. Yeah, okay. no, no, no. Okay. It, they didn't miss it at all, but they, you know, St. Matthew was reading it in Hebrew. And so, and he caught, the, as a matter of fact, I got to say this, for a long time, scholars didn't know how to pronounce Nazareth because in Hebrew, there are a couple of Z sounds, two Z sounds. One would be Nazareth, And that would come from the word to take a vow, Nazar. Whereas they found a plaque from about the year 200, and it listed the cities of uh, uh, Galilee. So it's a very, this is an 1,800-year-old uh, plaque. And they spelled it Nazoret. So one Z is Z sound, the other is And it means di different words. So a netzer is a, a shoot that comes out of the stump of an olive tree. And that's what the people named the town Nazareth at, after that verse. Because they were looking, it was a way for them to express, they were looking forward to the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. So there was a, a, an expectation in the town that the Messiah would be coming. Does that help, Anastasia? So that was kind of veiled then, right? That's in a, what? In a it was kind of veiled from a, you know, to a... Yeah, to a yeah, well, extent. veiled if you don't read the Bible in Hebrew, but, you know, that, that's, they should put the footnote in there. That would help, because most people don't read Hebrew, but, um, you know, for the people who first wrote it and read it, it was very clear. But, 
you know, we, we miss it because of translations. So we just got to, that, that's what that really is helpful, a helpful tool to learn other languages. You know, it's, um, it just opens up your cultural view to other approaches and uh, things that you might miss. You say, oh, now it makes sense. All right, thank you so much for calling, Anastasia. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a few more minutes with uh, your questions and emails, so please stay with us. want to remind you to join me tomorrow night for EWTN Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be speaking with the Most Reverend Robert J. Baker. If you remember, he used to be the bishop here. Now he's uh, Bishop Emeritus. And we will discuss how prayers of desperation can help us get through the fog and the turmoil of unplanned situations unwanted ones, things that we don't want to happen, and help us place our faith and trust firmly in God, even when it looks like everything is going terribly and we feel despair or lack of understanding. So that'll be very, very useful to us. All right, let us now take an email. <clears throat> Dear Father Mitch, I read that sacramentals are of no benefit to anyone in the state of mortal sin. Further, I've heard prayers are not heard if one is in mortal sin. Is this true? If so, what hope is there for persons living in marriages that are not and cannot be reconciled with church teaching? They remain in the marriage for practical reasons of health, finances, or dependent children, for examples. Marie in Michigan. Well, Marie, a couple things. First of all, sacramentals don't benefit if we're in a state of mortal sin. Why is that? Unlike sacraments, see, the sacraments have the guarantee of Jesus Christ. He initiated all seven sacraments that they are outward signs instituted by Christ to confer grace. And there's an old Latin phrase that a sacrament works ex opere operato. And that means it basically has its own inherent power because Christ guarantees it. Okay? Now, sacramentals, like a rosary or wearing a miraculous medal or a um, scapular or something, those are effective 
ex opere operantis. In other words, that their effectiveness is not guaranteed by Jesus Christ unless you're in the state of grace and that they, they depend on the attitude and the state of grace of the person. Okay? So that's very important to keep in mind that distinction. Now, when you say you're, that no prayers are, are effective for someone in mortal sin, that no prayers are not heard, I don't think that's true. You know, for instance, uh, lots of people in state of mortal sin might pray to repent. You know, lots of alcoholics have to come to a point of asking God to help them change, even before they make a formal confession. Part of the process is to get the alcoholic ready to make a thorough moral inventory of their lives. That is what we would call an examination of conscience. And the grace of God does work in such a person before they've you know, been reconciled fully. So I think with the prayer, you know, there, there are some prayers like if you're in the state of mortal sin, even if you're in the state of grace, you know, I'm not sure that it's a good idea to pray <laughs> that you win the lottery. Um, you know, that, that's something else. And, you know, there'll be a lot of other prayers of asking for things that really are not the point. Just like a kid who you know has been real obnoxious and has been just meaner than, uh, and, and you know, you know, did something to his brother or sister and, you know, smacked him upside the head or whatever. And you don't, when they come to you and say, Mom, can I have a cookie? No. No. You have to go reconcile with your sister first. And then we can talk about cookies. And even then, I'm thinking about it. But you very much want them to be reconciled before you start dealing with them on their other request. That would be the sense here. Now, in terms of staying in a marriage for practical purposes, what I would do in those circumstances, I, I understand they happen. Go talk to your parish priest and talk to him about, here are the circumstances. Here's what's going on. And, you know, open your heart to him about what's happening. And he may give you some advice on how you can pray effectively. That's what I would hope that you would do. Okay? All right. We have some Mark on the phone. Mark, where are you calling from? Hi, Father. Love your show, Savannah, Georgia. Oh, great. Great, great, great. Good to have you. Glad to have you with us. Well, that, Thank you. Savannah is a very, very beautiful city. Yes, it is. Thank you, Father. What can we do for you today? Well, Father, two questions. I, I wanted to know your opinion of the movie The Chosen. Uh -huh. that has been coming out in the series on TV. It yeah. seems to be very good. And uh, yeah. also, evil spirits in the Bible. 
it seems like Christ puts out a lot of evil spirits out of people, as did the apostles. <laughs> but you don't hear us that much about evil spirits today, and I know they're there. Mm-hmm. But uh, is there a reason for that today, or just sure. people don't believe in it? Or I know the church does, and I do too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But can you elaborate well, on that a little bit? Sure. Uh, first of all, with the chosen, that's a very fine series. I think the the only one that a Catholic would have problems with is the one about the uh, when uh, Our Lady uh, is talking about you know, the conception of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. There, there, there are a few things there that be a bit off from our doctrine, but, you know, apart from that, they've done a very good job of trying to put our Lord in a first-century Palestinian Jewish context. That's very important. So that's a, that's a fine uh, series to get a, a sense of things. And a feel for it. So that's a good thing. I love the camaraderie. It shows what's yeah. Christ with the apostles over three yeah. years. No? And exactly. I, I like that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's an important part. You know, he, he loved the apostles and they loved him. You know, and so that's that's a good thing. Yes, uh, so that's people. that's fine. <clears throat> now, in terms of the demonic, I, I made allusion to this earlier in the show. We didn't see as much of the demonic because people were baptized and religion was the norm. And people in this country and other parts of the world were very, very religious and lived their Christianity. However, as we have seen people move away from Christianity, look at how many young people do not baptize their children. And they say, well, I'll let them make up his mind later on. And then they don't teach them about Christ. They expect the kid to figure it out on their own, something they don't do with algebra. They don't say, oh, kid, just go get a book and, you know, see if algebra is good for you or not. You know, if you don't like it, don't use it. Uh, no, no, you, you have to be taught algebra. And a lot of people don't teach the faith, and they don't teach people to discern that which is evil and distinguish it from what is good, what makes something good, what makes something evil. People are not thinking about that. And folks get into a wide variety of addictions whether it be to drugs, alcohol, now sex, shopping, consumerism, all kinds of things. And there's there's this open market of religious ideas. People are dabbling in tarot cards, astrology, and uh, spiritism. You could call up a 900 number on TV and have somebody tell you about your fortune and what the spirits are saying. All of that ended up opening more and more people to the demonic. And we are seeing that show up in two ways. Some people have classical signs of demon possession and that they, uh, or obsession, and they get under the control of the evil one. That, that happens. 
But much more often, people become filled with hate. And you see this hatred and anger that has a certain demonic quality to it. And that is also growing. Look at the discourse. There's something very evil about the way people speak to each other, speak about each other, and are rude, and oftentimes truly hateful. And I think that, uh, and then you see the increase of murder, and state-sanctioned murder for babies in the womb, or for the elderly, or the sick, so now up in Canada, that I think it's one of the what, number one and number two cause of death is suicide aided by doctors. This, that is demonic. That is something evil. And their politicians up there and elsewhere don't like saying that. And they don't like me saying it. But I have to say because death is God's enemy and Satan's friend. All right, thank you and God bless.